Revelation chapter 21 is where we're headed today. This is the second part of a message on the heavenly Jerusalem. A couple weeks ago, we looked at it. We had a special speaker this last week. Today, we're going to be concentrating on verses 21 through 27. Revelation chapter 21 through 27. As you turn, notice we're just about at the last chapter of the book of the Revelation. As you have seen this revelation of Jesus Christ, as Pastor Rod and I have preached through it, uh, what is it that you have seen about the Lord? What is it that has changed in your life as we have been evaluating these wonderful chapters together? We're beginning with verse 21 of chapter 21 with these words. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Several, every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and the city has no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Shall we pause together to pray? Be glorified this day, almighty God and precious Lamb, by the preaching of your word. Grant that it would reconcile us to you, that those who need to know that they ought to be warned would be warned. Those who need to be taught would be taught. As Paul said, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Lord, be glorified, I pray, in the preaching of your word today and cause your people to pray as this messenger attempts to preach from your word. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. About an hour and a half to our east is a little town, a little burg called Savannah, Ohio. Early in the 1900s, there was a pastor there who had a wayward son, and he was very burdened about that son. His son had gotten in with some other young men that were not pulling him in the right direction, and he was very burdened about, what should I do for my son? So this pastor wrote to R.A. Torrey, who at the time was the superintendent of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And he was very, very transparent, very honest with Brother Tory, And he said, look, here's the difficulty I'm wrestling with. And here's my son and his problems. And he wrote to R.A. Tory, And R.A. Tory wrote back almost immediately and said, sir, we are not a reformation school. We're not a reform school. We're here as an institute for the training of God's servants. And so I'm sorry the answer is no. What you are telling me is that your son will not fit in here. Now, 
if you were faced with that kind of a reply, what would you do? Here is what this pastor did in Savannah, Ohio in the early 1900s. He, he wrote back and he said, I full well understand. I understand exactly what you are saying, but I am appealing to you. Could there not be some way that my son could attend Moody Bible Institute? And once again, he received a letter that said, no, I'm sorry, that, that, that is not the purpose of our school. We, we have to wrestle with how much of an influence will your son be on the other students while we try to have an influence on your son. And the pastor wrote back again and said, please, would you consider allowing my son to come to Moody Bible Institute? R.A. Torrey realized that he was up against a man who was really very determined like the woman who kept on asking, like the man who kept on knocking. So R.A. Torrey began to say, all right, you know, how, how could I help out this brother and his family? So he thought through it. And so then he wrote back and said, okay, I will allow your son to come to Moody Bible Institute, but there's going to be some pretty serious restrictions. He will be here on probation. In other words, if things begin to go at least slightly the wrong way, he will be done. He, he will not be allowed to re, be uh, retained here at school. And he said, the other is that I'm going to insist that your son come to talk to me every single day, even though R.A. Torrey, wonderful Bible teacher, wonderful Bible expositor, was a very busy man. He said, the only way I'm going to allow that is if your son comes every single day, and that's exactly what happened. Even if only to say, hello, and I'm here for a meeting, good to see you, and uh, don't have time right now, but other times they had uh, prolonged talks together. That young man's name was Bill Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L, -L, Bill Newell. And with joy the day came when William Newell when William Newell stepped into R.A. Torrey's office and said, I've been born again. I see it now. I've trusted Christ. And with great rejoicing, they rejoiced together and contacted the boy's father to say at last, the Lord has turned on the light. And it's been a joy to see the change in your son. The young man went on through his undergraduate education and went on to get a master's degree and ultimately went on to get a doctorate from Moody Bible Institute and then went out to pastor in the area. But the day came when they recognized his great potential and asked him if he would consider coming back to Moody Bible Institute and to be not only a teacher there, but the assistant superintendent under R.A. Torrey. And that is how William Newell came to take leadership in Moody Bible Institute. The name may not ring a bell for you. I started to bring a commentary up here this morning that I have written by William Newell on the book of the Revelation. But you would know William Newell best because... One day on the back of an envelope as he was 
in between classes or he had a free hour and said, I'm just going to try to think. He wrote these words on the back of an envelope. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span were the next two words. At Calvary. The wonderful hymn that we sing to this day. At Calvary. Newell had written these words, as I say, on the back of an envelope, and uh, they seemed intriguing to, me, to him. So as he was crossing paths in the hallway, changing classes, he saw Daniel Towner, who was the head of the music division. He said, by the way, uh, just, just wrote these words down, see if something that would be appealing to you. So Towner took the envelope, and his next hour was free, so he went, sat down at the piano, started working through it, and within that hour put together the tune that we love to sing even this day. And ever since then, people have sung together. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. As you and I come to this discussion today of the heavenly Jerusalem, we need to stop to remember, first of all, that it's all because of Calvary. It's all because of Christ. That when this passage speaks of the Lamb's book of life, that you and I would say it's life in the Lamb. Life in the Lamb. This is the confident hope of man, that there is, there's life in the Lamb. And as we work through this passage today, there are three aspects of this heavenly Jerusalem that we ought to carefully consider. Now, this is part of the new heaven and new earth. How is that connected to what is presently called the heavenly Jerusalem? It's a question we would have to kind of wrestle through. Is, is there a replacement heavenly Jerusalem? Is it the same? Because we do know that Presently, there is a heavenly Jerusalem. If you would take your Bibles and go over to Hebrews chapter 12, you could actually see it described there. And this helps to answer a question for all of us. You say when, when believers die, where do they go? Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells you that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And those words have been particularly comforting to people who have faced death. I have given you illustrations from this very pulpit of people like Betty Brown, who in the last moments of her life took those promises and with boldness she went right into eternity. You and I can have that same kind of boldness. Well, here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. You are come, that is, you as believers have already come to Mount Zion, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. What an incredibly beautiful vision this is. More angels than a man could number 
in the presence of God, the judge of all. And there is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And right in the midst of that, it mentions the just men, the spirits of just men who have made, been made perfect. I don't know why, but as I was working through this message and just praying over it, one of the first people that came to mind was Vivian Neal. Vivian Neal is now among the spirits of just men made perfect. I think one of the last times that I got a chance to talk to her, we were up there in the hospital room. She was asleep, and Charlie said, well, let me wake her up. I said, Charlie, no. He goes, no, no, she'll want to know you're here. Viv, 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 wake up. And he, he shook her awake, and Viv looked up and saw me, and she said, pray that I'd go quick. <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. I've, I've never, I don't think anybody's ever asked me before to pray that they would go quick. But she said, pray that I'd go quick. So we... Prayed, and I don't think I prayed in her presence, Lord, take her quick. But after that, I prayed, and the Lord took her quick. You say, how can people like that be so, so confident? How, I mean, how can there be such certainty? And the answer in this passage is, there is life in the Lamb, friends. There is eternal life in the Lamb. And that's why people like Vivian Neal, dear sisters in Christ like Vivian, could could face eternity the way they're facing it. Why? It's to be among the spirits of just men made perfect. It says in the passage, their names are written in heaven. One of the big questions about today's text is this individual question for each one of us. Is your name written in heaven? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you have the confidence that it's written there? Well, you look at verse 21 and you can see immediately when it speaks of pearly gates and streets of gold. You can recognize that that's exactly the way that many people refer to heaven as the, the pearly gates or the streets of gold. You know immediately what they are talking about. What's really astounding about that is, you know, that you and I today, if we were designing gates, would we design them out of Pearls, and we'd say, "Well, no, pearls are are very, very precious." Well, the economy is such there that pearls are gatepost. Gold is what you walk on. It's it's like concrete. It's like asphalt. Every time I hear people today say, "We need to get gold," I mean, you hear the talking heads on radio, "Get get gold." You need to have gold. It's only to realize, well, the gold, is it's the concrete, it's the asphalt, it's the paving stones of heaven. So perhaps there is greater treasure, it most certainly is, greater treasure than gold. About the closest you're going to come to that anywhere else in Scripture is a really interesting note in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 27. And it talks about the wealth of Solomon, and it just makes the comment, the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. <laughs> Think about that. If you were to, when you pull out uh, after Sunday school, if you were to go into the gravel parking lot, maybe some of you park out in the gravel parking lot to our south, just imagine that, that what they were saying is, you know, for them, silver was like stones. That's what heaven will be like. That's the beauty of heaven the pearly gates, the golden streets. And then this passage speaks of the glory of the heavenly Jerusalem. But before we go into this very far, we ought to pause to remember what we learned the last time we were here. 
Is the magnetism of heaven, the exquisite beauty, the pearly gates, I mean, golden streets, I mean, what is that the great magnetic pull? No. The highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God will dwell with his people there. God himself is there. If you ask the question today, well, why would I want to go to heaven? Why would anybody want to go to heaven? What is it that captures the heart and the imagination of any person? It is this, that that the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God is there present with his people. Yes, there is the beauty, the beauty of pearly gates and golden streets. And as you can see here in verse 22, the glory of it, when it speaks of, I saw no temple therein. We talked about this a good bit last time. I saw no temple. It seems, seems surprising, you know, such a beautiful place, and yet no temple. I saw no temple therein. Why not? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of sun, neither of moon to shine in it. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates it and the lamp, the lamb is the lamp or light thereof. When he says here that this is such a beautiful place, think about what happens. It says, the nations of those which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Pause again to ask, are you really saved? Are you a believer? Are you a genuine Christian? The Apostle Paul, when he was talking about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talks about, I, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He, he rose again the third day. And Paul, in that context, said, this is the truth by which you are saved. This is how you stand on this gospel truth. And this passage tells you that the nations of those who are saved, isn't it interesting to think of us still having a national identity in heaven? The nations of those which are saved shall walk in the light of it. The kings of the earth bring their glory into it. They bring their glory and honor of the nations into it. So this is the glory of heaven. No temple there. Why not? Because God himself and the Lamb are the temple. When we speak of being in Christ today, we are really alluding to ultimately this eternal state of what it will be like to be in Christ, in the Lamb. God the Father and Emmanuel, they will be the temple in which we dwell in this passage. And it's so significant, as we looked at last time, to see the words, and the Lamb. The Lamb is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our intercessor. But I think we can illustrate this story best by going to a different place in Scripture altogether. If you have your Bibles or your manuscripts, go back to Exodus chapter 32 just for a moment. Exodus chapter 32. And let me raise the question this way. What should you do when God puts up a do not disturb sign? When God puts up a do not disturb sign. Now, if you're thinking the way I would be thinking, if somebody asked me that question, you would say, well, wait, well, hold it. The Lord doesn't do that. I mean, the Lord always wants to hear from his children, God the Father, our loving Heavenly Father. He doesn't put up do not disturb signs. Well, 
Go back to Exodus chapter 32, and here's what you find in verses 9 and 10. This was right after the rebellious children of Israel had made the golden calf. Moses is on his way down, or just right after this, he's coming down from the mountain. Here's what the Lord said in Exodus 32, verse 9. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. He says, let me alone. Do you see what God did right there? He put out a do not disturb sign. He said, now let me alone. Why? That my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Whoa, really? What a sweet deal. I mean, here's Moses who has gone through so many problems with the people and so much murmuring and so much division and, he, and the heartache he has faced. And the Lord's saying to Moses, tell you what, Moses, leave me alone. Don't pray. I'll pour out my wrath on those people. And by the way, for you, Moses, and your family, I'll make of you a great nation. What do you say? What do you say? I want to point out to you that you as a believer have the privilege of knowing that you have an eternal home in heaven. You are secure. The Bible speaks of the perseverance of the saints and it speaks of the fact that we have eternal life. You are set. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior, you are set and you know I'm a citizen of that heavenly Jerusalem. It raises the question, why then should I pray? For anybody. You know, why? After all, excuse me, but right here in the Bible, the Lord said, let me alone. Uh-huh. Let me alone. Should I then just thank the Lord that I'm on the way to heaven and not pray, and not intercede for others. In this passage, Moses passed the test that he was being given. It was the test of an intercessor. It was the test of whether Moses would have the heart and the mindset of the Christ who is to come. If you go on in Exodus chapter 32, you can see in verse 32, here's what Moses said back to the Lord as he prayed. In other words, Moses did not accept the do not disturb sign. Moses said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to appeal. I, I, I'm going to appeal for these people. Yes, stubborn, rebellious, yes, but I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray for these people. Here's what he said in verse 32. Yet now, Lord, if you will not forgive their sin... I'm sorry, yet now, if you will, Lord, forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Whoa. Lord, blot me out of the book. Okay, now, what's the book he's talking about? In any city, in any municipality, there was the registry book. We would talk, call it today the census book. It was often called the book of life. The, the book of those who have been born there, the book of those who lived there in that city. But here Moses is talking about the ultimate book of life referred to in Revelation chapter 21. And think about what he's saying here. Lord, if necessary, 
blot my name out of that book. If you can't forgive those people, then Lord, blot my name out. The Apostle Paul had exactly the same sentiment in Romans chapter 9. He said, the Lord is my witness. I could wish myself to be accursed in order that my brethren would be saved. And as you know, this is exactly the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not merely wish that he could be accursed, but he actually was cursed for every one of us. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So this raises for us the questions about a do not disturb sign and about the book of life. Much greater than Moses, Jesus actually was cursed for our sins as our substitute on the cross of Calvary. He died and rose again to prove that he could conquer our curse. Understanding this explains what it means to say that we will be together in the temple of Almighty God and the Lamb. This is what it means to be in Christ. And we will dwell for all eternity with them because Jesus was willing to be cursed and actually was cursed. Moses wished it. Paul expressed it. Jesus actually carried through on that. So when you think about this heavenly Jerusalem and you think about the wonders of all that is here, the beauty, pearly gates, golden streets, think about the one who was cursed for us as our substitute so that we could be in him in the heavenly Jerusalem. You can see there that it also speaks of the fact that other things will be absent. What, what's going to be absent, you say? No, everything will be there. Well, there's some things that are going to be absent from the heavenly Jerusalem. What are they? Well, there's no temple because the Almighty God and the Lamb are the temple of it. It says no moon or sun. Why? They have no need of light. Why? Because the glory of God enlightens this place. As I was trying to think about how to express this, the acronym Light came to mind, living in godliness, holiness, and truth. That's what it will be like. Living in godliness, holiness, and truth there in the heavenly Jerusalem. Redeemed humanity, the nations of the earth, bring their glory into the city to glorify their creator and redeemer. And what does all this add up to? It adds up to this, that the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God will dwell with his people there. He will be their God. They will be his people. But then you come to verse 27. Then you come to verse 27. And this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about. 
when he said, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And what does it say in verse 27? As it's speaking about the, the citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles. Neither whatever works abomination or makes a lie. One translation translates that as nothing that is shameful, nothing that is deceitful. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. One of the great dangers that we all face when we come to our Bibles is the misuse of God's principles and promises. That is certainly true of the passage that is in front of us. But to try to illustrate that misuse, let me attempt it this way. How many of you have ever stayed in a hotel room and on the back of the door, the door that you would go out, there was a little sign hanging and that sign said some variation of do not disturb. If that's ever been true of you, would you raise your hand? You say, I've seen that. I've seen a do not disturb sign. And we all sort of learn, um, sometimes even instructions are written on that. If you don't want the housekeeping or for that matter, anybody else to disturb you, you Take the do not disturb sign, put it on the outside of the door. I ask you that in order to illustrate the following story, which we heard while we were in Israel. Now, bear in mind that when you travel, one of the difficulties is jet lag. I mean, you're tired. Your sleep schedule is all crazy, and sometimes you just don't process things very well. And this is how it happened that a particular lady, not in our group, and I don't even think it was in the same uh, touring company, but it's a story that we heard about, stayed in a hotel in which we also stayed, and I would kind of describe it to you this way. Here would be the door to go into this nice suite, and as far as I know, every single person that was on our tour had a suite like this. There was a a door that would lead into a hallway. Over this way was a very nice living room with couches and actually had a a balcony you could go out and you could look out on the Mediterranean Sea. It was in Netanya. And so you had that nice living room, come back to the hall. There was a a door that was uh, apparently for maintenance. It was locked for housekeeping. There's another door to the restroom and then there was another door to the bedroom. And I'm explaining all that to say and to tell you why that uh, the tour company, uh, they were all down ready for the bus. They were supposed to be down at the bus at a particular time. And they were all down on the bus and they were all waiting for one lady. And the one lady wasn't there. And they were thinking, where, where is she? I wonder if she's sick. I wonder, tried to reach her, her phone and nothing happened. And they, what's going on? And uh, so they, they finally called her room. And she said, I can't get out of my room. They said, oh, no. Oh, what, what, why not? She said, well, the, you know, I have a living room with a balcony. Obviously, she's several stories up. She can't go down that way. And she said, and then the door is locked that I'm 
was supposed to get out of. And she said, there's the restroom. And they said, yep. And then there's the bedroom, right? And they said, okay, there's one more door. She's talking about the door that she came in. There's one more door. And she said, no, I can't go through that door. And they said, why can't you go through that door? She said, that belongs to somebody else. And they said, why do you say that? She said, there's a sign right there that says, do not disturb. She couldn't walk out of her own hotel room because she saw a sign hanging on the door that said, do not disturb. Now, I have to tell you, as I thought about that illustration, I immediately thought about the way that people misuse principles and promises of God's word. And that would be true of verse 27. People misuse this passage. There have been in times past really wonderful, warm-hearted, godly people who knew the gospel, had trusted the Lord, and really believed that they were believers. And yet they said, I don't know if I'm one of the elect. I don't know if my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You say, why on earth would they say that? Well, if you look at Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8, you would see that it says about the Lamb's Book that, that their names were written before the foundation of the world. And so they, by misapplying what God was saying, they, though they demonstrated all the evidences that they truly were born again, they wondered, hey, uh, I don't know for sure my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I believe that's a misuse of this passage. There are other people who look at the strong warnings in a passage, such as the warning you have in verse 27, and it is as if it is such high-voltage stuff that they, I, 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 I think I am being warned off from going through that door. But you see, Jesus Christ is the door of the sheep. He, he is the way to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's as if they are looking at some of these passages, as Moses heard a do not disturb as a test, it's as if they're looking at this passage and saying, oh no, I, I, don't, think, I don't think I'm among these. Who will be the citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem? How can you know for sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Interesting passage, those of you who are going through the Bible reading schedule saw this just the other day. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, this was the first temple that Solomon built and they consecrated it. Here's what it says in verses 10 and 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. You get that? Even the priest, God's ordained, God-honoring people, they couldn't stay in there. And yet believers have the privilege of dwelling in the almighty God and the Lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you see that? 
But it is that glory that causes every person to pause and really raise the question, am I really one of those citizens? The glory of the Lord shone in Solomon's temple. Even the leaders couldn't stay in there. The glory of the Lord shines brightly out of this passage so that all of humanity can see there is the glory of God and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And they begin to recognize if you are going to talk about the almighty, you also have to talk about abominations. You have to ask the question, if the Lord is telling us with clarity what is true and right, is he also telling us with clarity what is horrible and wrong? You've been around long enough. You've been watching what's going on in the news. You know that there are a great number of lies that are being told us. Friends, where do those come from? Well, here's what John 8:44 says. It says Satan is the father of lies. He's the father of it. This passage talks about making a lie or doing that which is deceitful. You and I know it's like everywhere. The media and every other place, the question is, is it in us? Is it in me? Is it in you? Satan is the father of lies. He is a murderer from the beginning. He revels in that which is shameful and that which is deceitful. And you and I know that this is especially important to remember in our society right now, in a society that has gone mad in its abominations. What used to be considered a creepy fetish, characterized as abnormal, is now being put forth as very good entertainment for children in schools and libraries. What? Now, if you and I really love the people who are involved in perversion and cross-dressing and a whole host of other abominations, then we have a question that we ought to be putting forward. Wait, wait, stop. Think about the message. Maybe you're saying, well, <clears throat> now there's a, there's a do not disturb sign out, so, you know, let, let's just not stir up the hornet's nest. First, what we ought to be doing is going before the Almighty God and interceding and praying and crying out and loving people enough to tell them the truth of passages like this one, if we really do care to tell them the truth. He talks here about that which is deceitful, that which makes a lie. It's speaking of with the tongue or the pen to defile, whether it's slander or social media. What is really being revealed here? What's being revealed is the deceptiveness and the lies of people. Okay, let's bring it down then to a fine point, shall we? Is your life a lie or are you registered in the Lamb's book of life? There it is simply put. Is your life a lie or are you registered in the Lamb's book of life? 
You say, why would you say it that way? You know of people. I know that you know of people who used to proclaim the glories of God and sing and do what seemed to be, by every indication, God honoring. And now they have completely turned their back on the Lord and say that they no longer believe and that the gospel is not true. What was going on there? They were living a lie. John says they, they went out from us because they were not of us. They were living a lie. So the question comes down to the preaching point for every single one of us here. Is your life a lie or are you registered in that Lamb's book of life? Being registered in the Lamb's book of life means that you and I enjoy eternal life and that God's grace is laboring in us. And by the way, it will all the way to the end. And it's warnings like we find here in verse 27 that wake us up to the reality of what is there. Use passages like this rightly. Perhaps there are those here under the sound of my voice or someone listening online, and you need to use this passage to awaken your conscience, awake to righteousness, and sin not. Maybe that's the real issue here. Maybe for you it is that you've been looking at this all wrong, and there ought to be every confidence in your heart that you really do know the Lord and your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that ought to be like the secure foundation from which you launch into life and intercede for others and pray for them and just go forward into eternity. And yet you use a passage like this as almost like a do not disturb sign. On one occasion, 70 followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had sent out to preach, they came back to him and said, Jesus Wow, here's what's happening. When we go out and preach in your name, the demons are submissive to us. Wow. You know what Jesus said? This is Luke chapter 10, verse 20. He said, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. As we close this message, I ask you the question, do you have the confidence that you have life in the Lamb, life in the Lamb? You can know that for sure. 1 John 5 says, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that with certainty and confidence as a foundation for the rest of your days as you serve the Lord. But we also have to be very careful to ask, do you understand that nothing which defiles, nothing which makes an abomination, nothing that makes a lie will be allowed into the pearly gates and onto the golden streets? I say to you again today that the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God will be there dwelling with his people. If you today are not drawn to fellowship with him and hearing from him and loving him and longing for him, what makes you think you would enjoy heaven? Because that's the essence of it. God himself is there with his people. 
This is the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem. May I appeal to you then today, time spent finding out is time well spent. Find out what is the Lord's message for me? What does the Lord want me to know and do? Shall we bow our heads together? Dear friend, this was a very difficult message to preach, but I'm convinced it's what the text is showing us. Are you willing to intercede for the lost, even the rebellious and abominable of this world, and to tell them the truth as someone told you the truth? Do you know for sure that you were born again? Or does something in your heart and mind whisper to you, you are living a lie? The Lord does not want you to go on in constant misery, constantly trying to avoid that question. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why not go to the one who was accursed for you and embrace him as your Lord and Savior and find that he alone can give you rest? Lord, thank you for what you've shown us today. Thank you for the glories of your word. It's a sharp two-edged sword that cuts in both directions. Enable us, Lord, by your grace to embrace your message. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.